So let's talk about Satan for a moment before we jump in. Satan uh, is a created being. Satan is an angel. He's just an evil angel. As we know, God is the only uncreated being. Uh, we get this idea from popular stories and maybe even some cartoons that there's this battle between God and Satan and they're on equal footing and there's this, this war being waged. Believe me, God is not afraid. God has all the power. The name Satan comes from the, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word for adversary. The name devil is a transliteration of the Greek word that means one set in opposition. The name Lucifer comes from the Latin word from the Latin Vulgate for light bringer. Now we have to understand that Satan, as I said, has no power outside the ordained will of God. We've seen this in the book of Job. Satan, despite what you might think, is not bright red. He doesn't have horns and hooves and carry around a pitchfork. Those popular images were actually created by monks in the Middle Ages with the express purpose of mocking Satan, which I think is a very dangerous game. Satan normally works through subtlety. We may associate his work with popular movies like The Exorcist, which is the greatest horror film ever made, but possessing people and turning them into murderous monsters would only serve to prove God's existence. Satan is not interested in physical death. He is interested in spiritual death. Um, he's not going to do anything that's going to send people straight to the church for help or to prove that he is what the Bible says he is. So he works through subtlety. He entices people to do evil. He actually makes them believe the evil they're doing is good. Even through demonic possession, he is much more likely to try to very subtly subvert any goodness or distract people from the things of God than he is to turn into a monster. When Paul talked about false apostles in 2 Corinthians, he talked about men who appeared to be good men, appeared to be regular old pastors, but who were teaching false doctrine. He said this, and what I, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So we see here how Satan works. This is how he's always worked. It's how he works today, and he is working today. It's how he will work until Christ returns, and Satan is thrown into eternal torment physically, uh, I mean spiritually, killed. In the Bible, he's called Satan, the devil, a serpent, a dragon, Leviathan, the morning star, the accuser, the enemy, Belial, the prince of the world, and this, the ruler of this world, and probably way more than I couldn't think of as I was writing this. Now, the Bible says very little about Satan's origin story. There are a ton of inferences made based on the scarce information we have, and I would challenge a lot of what we might think we believe, what we're sure about a supposed fall of Satan and what happened before that fall. What we know is much more about what he does now and what his future holds. So tonight, as we're going through this next passage, we're going to look at what Satan does now. Now, Last time we began the third cycle of seven visions that constitute the whole vision that is the book of Revelation. And what we saw were those seven angels, we saw they had seven trumpets, and we saw that the seven trumpets represent judgments of God on the world. And what we saw in the first two trumpets is that these aren't judgments that are reserved just for the very end of time. These are judgments that are realities now, have always been, and will be until Christ's return. And just quickly to summarize what we saw last time, we considered the first two trumpets. We saw that God judges the world through two means. First, we saw that God judges the world through their sin. We saw that sin itself is a punishment for those who harden their hearts against God. Second, we saw that God judges the world through his word. In particular, we saw the spreading of the gospel expands the kingdom of God on earth. 
It judges and diminishes and overcomes the kingdom of Satan. But we also saw the fact that God has revealed himself in his word makes the unsaved even more guilty of their unbelief. So today we'll look at the third trumpet blast, and that's in Revelation 8.10, where we read, And the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. So the third angel blows his trumpet, and a great star, we're told, falls from heaven. So first we've got to figure out who this star is. And if we continue in the vein that we began in with the first two trumpets, then what we have here in the third trumpet is going to be a judgment that will affect unbelievers but not believers. We saw that the judgments of the first two trumpets pointed us back to the book of Exodus, where God judged Egypt, and he, he performed those judgments that did not affect his people in the land of Goshen. Now, again, this is not to say that we have it easy as believers in the here and now, because we most certainly do not. Think what we've already seen in the book of Revelation. This piece directly against that idea. In fact, we have a more difficult road to walk in the world as Christians, because we saw we live in a kingdom that is opposed to us because it is, it oppo it is opposed to our king. And that's not to say we're not affected by sin in the world, like we saw in the first trumpet. As we'll see, it's not to say we're not affected by what we see in this trumpet, but what we do not experience in this world is the punitive judgment of God through these things. He may correct us. He may allow us to fall in order to show us our sin and our need for repentance, but he is never punishing us for our sin because we know that Christ took the full punishment of sin for us. So in this punishment here is directed towards unbelievers. And if you remember, we left off looking at the second trumpet and the mountain that represented the kingdom of the world was thrown into the sea and we read that a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. We saw that these ships refer to the, and the sea refers to the world system and those who are part of it. And we briefly looked forward to Revelation 18 to see how this is so and how Babylon represents that world system. So Revelation 18, we read, after, I, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So remember, the ships that were destroyed are those ships of the merchants of the earth who have lived according to the world, according to its wisdom, according to its ways. And we see here in Revelation, again, there's an angel coming down from heaven that made the earth bright with his glory, kind of similar to what we see here in 8.10 when we see that a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. And we can see a similarity here between the brightness of the angel and the brightness of the star and the fact that both come from heaven. And both stars, as we've seen elsewhere, stars represent angels from heaven. But this angel here is a different angel. So the question for us tonight is which angel is represented in the third trumpet? Well, let's continue on. Revelation 8, 10, and 11. We read, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the, waters, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So the name of this star representing the angel is called Wormwood. Now, Wormwood is the name of a plant whose nectar is extremely bitter. People use the, the, the nectar for a bitter taste. The word here in the Greek of one word is actually absinthos. It's where we get the name of the liquor absinthe, which is made from the nectar of the wormwood plant. That's just some bodice etymology for you all. You're welcome. But this star is named wormwood because it lands in a third of the water and it makes that water bitter so that people die from the water. So what's going on? So 
Again, let's note the star form from heaven does represent an angel, but remember there are both good angels and bad angels. We usually refer to the bad angels as demons, which is just a Greek word from the ancient Greek that refers to evil, smaller, minor gods. And I believe that this great star that's blazing like a torch here in Revelation 8.10 is none other than Satan himself. Now, a little later in the book, we're going to read this description of the fall of Satan. Revelation 12, 7 through 9, where we'll see, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that aged serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here we see the dragon is expressly identified as Satan. And it says that he and his demons are thrown down to earth. And this is not describing a fall of Satan from way back in the beginning of time. This is speaking of his defeat on Calvary. Now, we do have this account shortly before this. Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, we read, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, who we know now is Satan, with seven heads and ten horns, representing his dominion on earth, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And that, of course, are the other evil angels, the demons. Now, this here may be talking in part about Satan's initial fall, but it is certainly speaking about his ministry of evil up until his defeat at Calvary which we won't get into until we come to Revelation chapter 12. But note here, the stars are referring to demons. But there's more. Because as we've seen, throughout the Bible, Babylon represents the world system, which is under the control of Satan and is really synonymous with the kingdom of this world. And as we've seen, Babylon throughout history has represented the whole of the enemies of God who are under the dominion of Satan. We've looked at some Old Testament prophecies already that had a near fulfillment in literal Babylon taking literal Israel captive and then those captives being restored back to the land. But ultimately, that is fulfilled in the final salvation of God's people from this world at the resurrection. Now, here's another prophecy about Babylon's defeat and the return of God's people to the promised land. Isaiah 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own lands. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's hand as male and female slaves. They will take captives those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor is ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth in the singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. It's a very bright and poetic language there. Now, th this is, in its near fulfillment, a prophecy about the fall of Babylon and the return of Israel to its land, which extra-biblical history will prove out. But between the books of Daniel and Second Chronicles, we actually have the biblical record to see God's purpose in all of that. That's the near fulfillment. But the ultimate fulfillment... This is talking about the final judgment. The final judgment where the evil will be judged, where we will be given resurrection bodies, and Satan will be judged. And there's more to this prophecy. Let's continue in the very next verse. 
how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. That's where we get the name Lucifer in the Latin translation, that day star. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And many people believe the judgment pronounced here in these four verses are about Satan and not the king of Babylon. But both are in view here. So many Old Testament prophecies have multiple fulfillments, and God has used human history to point us to the reality of the spiritual realm that lies behind the physical realm over and over and over again in history. And that's one of the points of the books of Revelation. It's a quality we find in a lot of biblical prophecy. But here in the Isaiah passage, understanding this has a dual fulfillment, we see a few things. All right, note that the king of Babylon, or Satan, says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Does this sound like anything else we've seen? Let's go to Genesis 11, where we read, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this, of course, is the Tower of Babel. And Babel is what becomes the nation of Babylon. So as early as Genesis 11, God used the idea of Babylon, the symbol of Babylon, as the godless world, as the world system, as its people who were under the control of their king. And in Isaiah, the correlation is made between the king of Babylon and Satan himself, because as we've seen, Satan is the king of this world. Those that do not have God as their king have Satan as their king. Those who are not citizens of heaven are citizens of Babylon, spiritually speaking. And think about the incident at Babel. It is held up as the height of man's sin and rebellion against God, at least since the Garden of Eden. And in the account of the fall of man, we see the serpent who Adam and Eve were deceived by, the serpent who they decided to follow in that moment. And we see their expulsion from the Garden. And the Babel, the Babel incident is showing the same type of judgment, but on the whole world, on a global scale. And Babel, or Babylon, is where this global judgment took place. So in this Isaiah passage, we also notice that this description of Satan is a comparison to the sun, the brightest star there is for those of us on earth. This corresponds with the comparison of Satan to a star in Revelation 8. But notice third, what both the king of Babylon did physically and what Satan does spiritually. They lay the nations low. In the Hebrew, it just says destroyed. It literally says they destroyed the nations. This is what Babylon did in its time as the dominant world power, and this is what Satan has done since the Garden of Eden. But it's important to note that the Hebrew word for nations, the word goyim, it, the word is used to speak of the Gentile nations. This is the nations as opposed to the chosen nation of Israel. And when we get to the New Testament, that word is ethnos. That's where we get our word ethnic from. And it's used to translate all the Old Testament quotations of the word goyim. The word of the New Testament is translated as Gentiles 90 times and nations 67 times. And this is, again, is an example, as you've heard me say, of how interpretation cannot be taken out of translation. Because whatever word you choose to translate this word ethnos, whether Gentiles or nations, is going to point the English reader naturally in a certain direction in their interpretation. So always keep that in mind. So we see that throughout history, Satan destroys he spiritually lays the nations low. But what we see when we take a look at Christ's victory over Satan, we see something change. We see that Satan had the ability specifically to destroy the Gentile nations in a very specific way. 
So let's flash forward to the passage that we'll probably have to spend a year and a half on, Revelation 20, where we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, and Satan, very similar language to what we saw in Revelation 12, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So you notice the parallel, almost a repeated language from Revelation 12 here, where we read of Satan's defeat and his expulsion from heaven. And this happens at Christ's first advent. Now, I won't go too in-depth here, but Satan was bound when Christ rose from the dead. This is the binding of the strong man that Christ spoke of when he said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, the strong man in this analogy is Satan. The house is the world, and the goods are the nations that Satan was deceiving. So when we read, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That deceiving the nations, well, this is Satan's deception of the Gentile nations. This can be translated just as easily that he might not deceive the Gentiles any longer. So here in the millennium, we, the Gentile nations, are no longer deceived in that we are not separated from God's people who were once of a specific nation. Because remember, the Goyim, the Gentiles, were in contrast to that nation. They were once a specific nation, but they have not been since the coming of Christ. This is the mystery that Paul speaks about in the book of Ephesians, that God's plan was to include the nations of the Gentiles. Ephesians 3, we read, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel, the ethnos, the nations, the goyim, we are fellow heirs with Israel. So when we read about that battle in heaven, back in Revelation 12, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This defeat of Satan is the victory won by Christ. This is the binding of Satan. This is why Christ could say at his first advent, before he died, he said, now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He is speaking of Satan being cast out of heaven. He is speaking of his inability to deceive the nations anymore because his power has been overcome by Christ. But why is this deception and Satan's position in heaven correlated? Well, because as we'll read later in Revelation 12, and the great dragon that Satan was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And if you follow the reading plan, you know that a couple weeks ago we went through the book of Hebrews. And the writer of the book of Hebrews explains how the Old Testament sacrifices were meant as a reminder of sin, not as an atonement for sin. 
How they didn't do anything to take away guilt. Well, Satan, the accuser, as we know from the book of Job, which was before he was thrown out of heaven, as we know from the book of Zechariah and the vision of Joshua, the high priest in heaven, which was before he was thrown out of heaven, part of his ministry before Christ's first coming was accusing men and women before the throne of, of God. Accusing them of what? Well, accusing them of sin. We saw it in the book of Job, how he was accusing Job to God, that Job, God, Job only obeys you because of all you've given him. So before Christ came, this is what Satan did. And you know what? He was right concerning the nations. We, the nations, when we weren't joined to Israel, we were dead in our sins. We were separated from a nation of Israel and therefore separated from God. But once Christ finished his work by rising from the dead and ascending on high, Satan was thrown down because Christ died for the whole world. John 3.16, right? We all know it. Satan now had no place in heaven because the accusations against the nations who were now included in the covenant and whose sins could be covered by the blood of the Lamb were no longer true. That part of his ministry ended with the first advent of Christ. Now, as we've seen, this does not mean that Satan is powerless against us. We know that. The Bible's clear on that, right? In fact, Revelation 12 ends this way. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, which was Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And what we'll see is that this chapter talks about historically Satan's efforts to stop the birth of the Messiah. Satan wanted Israel to fail because that would mean the Messiah would not come. But he wasn't able to do so. And in his subsequent expulsion from heaven and his binding that it can no longer keep the Gentile nations from salvation in Christ nor accuse them before God, his ministry had to change. And now, even though the war is won, Satan is still battling us, even though he's been defeated. Why? Because he knows his time is short, and that makes him extremely dangerous. And as believers, there are two dangers in particular we need to be ready for, two ways that Satan battles against us. First, Satan still tries to fool us. He wants to tempt us, believers, to sin. Not because it'll separate us from God, not because it will damn our souls to hell, because it will move us away from God just a little bit. It'll get our eyes off of God and, and the mission that we have as believers and will distract us from that. But he also tries to exclude us and our witness through our sin. Because when we sin, we are just like the world. And when we do that, you know what? The world can write us off. They can write off the Christian faith, they get rid of God as utterly irrelevant because they can see our sin and they can say, they're no different than we are. And I assure you, Satan has the world waiting for any and every opportunity to say just that, to dismiss us and dismiss, dismiss God altogether. So it's the first thing we have to be careful for, Satan tempting us to sin. But second, Satan has the world turned against us. We've already seen this in the book of Revelation a bunch of times. Like when Christ addresses the church in Smyrna and he says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And we saw that that is the world, that is the devil working through the world to literally put these men and women in prison. We see Satan incites the world against us and he does that also to discourage us to turn us from our mission, to physically get us away from each other if he has to, to physically get us out of our ministries. This is what Christ warned about. The night before he died, he said, I have said these things to you. And remember, he was talking about the sufferings Christians would have in the world. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is why Christ calls us believers over and over again to perseverance, both in the Gospels and as we've seen in the book of Revelation. So, to summarize, while God related to his people under the old covenant, Satan held the Gentile nations under his control to keep them from salvation. He was able to accuse them in heaven because they were, in fact, guilty before God, being separated from his people. But now, as Paul says, the wall of separation is torn down. As Paul says over and over again in the book of Galatians, God has united Jew and Gentile in Christ. So Satan can no longer deceive the, the Gentiles as a group concerning God's salvation. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ, no matter what nation they are from, he can no longer accuse us because all of our sin is gone. But as I said, he still has power over those of the world. As we saw, Revelation 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. See, our citizenship is in heaven, right? We are those that dwell in heaven. We may be in the world, but we are not of the world like the unsaved are. And as we will see, and as we've already seen, the earth and the sea both represent the world system in the book of Revelation, or the whole kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of Satan, or whoever you want to put it. Remember, on the third day of creation, God created... He separated the lands from the sea. Together, that represents the whole physical world. In the book of Revelation, that represents the whole kingdom of this world, spiritually speaking. But for us, our citizenship is in heaven. We are protected against Satan and his wrath, as it's talked about here. Not that he can't influence us, not that he can't entice us to sin, not that he can't fool us to believe lies, but we have the Holy Spirit within us. And remember, God has all the power. But what about the rest of the world? The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This is Satan's defeat and expulsion out of heaven to earth at Christ's first advent. And we see that what he does now is limited. Right? We see that third again. We saw things that affected a third of the earth meant a limited scope. So Satan only has partial power in this world now. Why? Because Christ has come, and those of all nations are included in the covenant if they believe. This is why our mission as the church is to bring the gospel to all nations. This is why Christ said of the end that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Could just as easily say to all Gentiles. Revelation 8.10. Revelation 8.10. Boom, thank you. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So... As I said, Satan's power is now limited, but he is still able to destroy. He can still spiritually lay low, like the king of Babylon physically laid the nations low. And he does this by deceiving the world, deceiving those who do not know Christ. And this is why we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When the church evangelizes, we are locked in a debate with Satan. When you witness to a friend or a family member, you are locked in a debate with Satan and the prize is souls. What we tell the world, what we tell the world about Christ is counter to everything they're hearing elsewhere because Satan's in control of everything else. He is the ruler of this world. 
And what power he has, he will exert to keep the world believing his propaganda. I mean, just look around, and this is painfully obvious, isn't it? It is Satan's power and deception that can make a person say that by all accounts, worldly accounts, good people with all conviction, believing they are on the side of good, can say how terrible it is not to teach kindergartners about transgenderism. Think about that. This is the propaganda of Satan. And this is why he still battles us, the church. He knows he can't take us from God. But if he can entice us to sin, if he can cause us to stumble in, in, in plain sight of the world, then he can disqualify us. He can close their ears to the truth we bring. And we see here in Revelation, this star that represents Satan is called Wormwood, so named because of the bitter plant. When the star falls on a third of the waters, again, the limited scope here, the, what power he has, when it falls on those waters, we see it makes the waters bitter, causing many people to die. Satan has limited power, but what power he uses, what power he has, he uses to kill. Now remember, we're speaking spiritually here, okay? And what this is calling us back to here is, again, the book of Exodus. Remember, God takes his people from Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. He destroys their enemies in that same sea. They're now safe, free, on the other side of the sea. And Moses sings his song of praise. We read that Miriam and the women of Israel sing songs, dancing and banging their tambourines, singing how great God is. And the very next verse is this. Ready? Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. It means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made, a stat made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So we see here, God took bitter water. It was salt water. It couldn't be drunk. They took bitter water, and he made it sweet. He took undrinkable water, and he made it drinkable to save his people that would die without it. And his injunction here for obedience, right after that, this isn't a non sequitur of any sort. Very often when we read the Old Testament, we think of some parts of it as just like a randomly strung together commands, but that's never the case. Here, God makes supernatural provision for his people. He calls them to obey, specifically promises not to bring upon them the same punitive judgments that he brings upon the world if they will listen to his voice. See, this is about believing him. For those who believe, God makes bitterness sweet. He brings from death life. And we see he provides for their needs naturally. He, he had first taken bitter water and miraculously made it drinkable, and then he leads his people to drinkable water. And the implication is that believing God leads to his protection and his provision here on earth. But the meaning here is spiritual, right? Because obedience doesn't mean you won't suffer in this world. It doesn't mean you won't physically die. It doesn't mean that you might not be martyred. No, it means God provides the spiritual water we need to live in the kingdom of this world because we are of the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about our salvation, specifically the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see this later when Israel is back in the same exact situation and they complain about having no water, how God provides them water from the rock, which we read in the New Testament is Christ, who provides the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay? But in Revelation 8, 11, the name of this star is Wormwood. 
A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. What do we see? We see the opposite of what happened at Marah, where God, their healer, provided from bitter water, sweet water, and saved life. Here, the enemy, the adversary, the devil, we see him take sweet water and make it bitter so that people will die. But this is also speaking spiritually. See, Satan, while he cannot deceive us who know Christ into unbelief, while he cannot accuse us because we have no sin that was not paid for by Christ, he can still exert that power over the unsaved. This is those who have no excuse we saw, because it's just evident that God is. But with Satan's deception, with him taking what is right, him taking what is true, he turns that into bitterness for the unsaved. And they can rationalize God away. And they do not believe God. And they do not obey him. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11, he said, Without faith it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Satan makes sure the world believes neither. Satan does everything in his limited power, including trying to exclude as many Christians as he can from witnessing to the world to keep the unsaved from knowing the truth. He feeds them lies and he makes them believe them. Spiritually speaking, he gets people who are dying dying of spiritual thirst to drink bitter water, and they die. Now, that was a very long way to go to say that in addition to sin and in addition to his word, God uses Satan as a means of judgment on the unsaved in the here and now. That's what happens in this third trumpet. It is another punitive and completely just judgment of God on the unsaved. He punishes them by their own sin, he turns them over to the impurity of their own sinful hearts to further sin, by which they are punished, and for which they will still be punished. He punishes them by his word. He diminishes the kingdom they belong to through the saving of souls. But as we've seen, he also increases their sin and the judgment they deserve. Jesus said in John 15, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Remember, hearing the gospel either saves or it condemns. And we see here in the third trumpet, God punishes the world, the kingdom of this world, through their king. He punishes them by Satan and his deceptions. In particular, the deception that is reserved only for those who do not know Christ. It is a deception that will only work on those who do not know Christ. We are talking about him increasing unbelief. He entrenches it in the hearts of believers. So if the truth seems like a lie to them, and lies seem like the truth, and they drink the bitter water of his deceptions, and they'll die from that. So that is the third trumpet. 